And now hear God's holy word from Leviticus chapter 9 as we continue our study in the order and sequence and foundations of Christian worship. Beginning with verse 1 in chapter 9. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burn offering without blemish and offer them before Yahweh. Down to verse 15. Then he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it and offered it for sin like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar beside the burnt uh, sacrifice of the morning. He also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from the offering, offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, thank you for informing us and giving us structure and uh, foundations for how to approach you in worship, but open our ears and open our eyes so that we might see and obey and follow the patterns that you have given us. Father, uh, open my lips and uh, loosen my tongue that I might articulate these things clearly, deliver us from everything that would be in error or would be a distraction to the truth, and guide us by your Holy Spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What are you good at? What is the thing that brings you the most satisfaction and joy that you have practiced and you are confident that you can do it well. Whether it has something to do with your occupation, there's a part of your job that you just really love doing and it brings you satisfaction and joy to do it, or whether, whether it's your golf swing or your backhand in tennis or whether it's gardening or sewing or playing a musical instrument, whatever it is that you do well, whatever it is that brings you joy, I'm confident, and I can't think of a single exception to this rule, I'm confident that that is a skill that you mastered only because there were certain things you did over and over and over in a specific order. You learned patterns and you learned routines of behavior and you adopted new habits that became part of you. And now performing these things and performing them well is a matter of repeating the good habits that you learned. And then when you feel yourself getting rusty or slipping or not performing as well as you like, it's disappointing and you remember, oh yes, I got that out of order. I forgot to do X or I did B before I did A and I messed up. I left out an important component. So if we agree that doing tasks well and living life skillfully means being practiced in certain routines, learning good habits that we do over and over and over, developing certain rituals of behavior as you master them. Do you think that the most important thing in the world, the thing that we were created for, which is worship, do you think the most important thing in the world is a matter of flying by the seat of your pants? 
Do you think that the worship of your creator, as we saw last week, the worship of our creator, which is priestly intercession on behalf of the world, which is our warfare against the dominion of darkness and ignorance and death, do you think that's something you can make up as you go along? Something we leave to the guy with the guitar who thinks it would be really meaningful if we did this first and this different this way on Sunday. That would be, that'd be really cool, wouldn't it, if we just mixed it up? They'll be so surprised <laughs> if we mix it up this Sunday. Or has God perhaps expressed to us what is pleasing to him in worship? Has he, in fact, given us certain patterns to follow, certain things to do in a certain order so that our approach to him is orderly, yes, but also reflects and informs certain patterns of life, habits of life that we carry with us throughout the week, that in worship we learn how to do certain things, how to respond to God, how to respond to each other, how to love each other, so that through the week, we're repeating the patterns and habits that we learned in worship. And we do them over and over and over because that's how you become skilled at doing these things. As we saw last week, if corporate worship were just a matter of singing a few songs, if corporate worship were just, you know, hearing a sermon, not too long, but, you know, just enough to kind of give me some things to think about, if it's all about just seeing our friends, if that's all corporate worship is, is that, if, if that's the sum of the purpose of worship, then it really doesn't matter if you miss it. I mean, I'll see my friends again. I'll sing a song some other time. I'll listen to a sermon on the internet. It's not really a big deal. It's not a big deal if that's not, if, if that's not your highest priority. But if corporate worship is coming into the presence of the living God to hear him and to be heard by him, if corporate worship is an official act of intercession on behalf of the world, if it's the primary means by which God transforms the world as he hears his bride and he answers her prayers, then how can we put anything else before it? We observed, uh, observed last week how the apostle Peter said that we are priests in the way that the nation of Israel were priests. There's a continuity between the worship of Israel and the worship of the church, and a continuity between the role of the worshiper under the old covenant and the worshiper in the new covenant. Like Israel, our worship is intercessory. Like, like, like Israel, we worship on behalf of the world. Like Israel, we stand in the breach, we stand in the gap for the world. Our worship is warfare. When Israel was faithful and when she sang the Psalms and when she put worship in front, when she determined to please God with her worship and didn't go after idols, but did things the way God said to do them, God defeated her enemies. So if our worship is warfare, if it's intercessory, and in worship we wear our priestly armor and we go on offense against Satan and his dominions, then it's not, it's, it's not peripheral. This morning I want to add another principle to our understanding of worship. It is intercessory, it is warfare, but something else that provides Christian worship its meaning and its structure is this. Worship is covenant renewal. Throughout the scriptures, whenever God prescribes or initiates practices for worship, there is an important aspect there of refreshing man's union and fellowship with God. We have an opportunity when we draw near to God to confess our sins, to hear him speak, 
to, to commune with him and to be refreshed and renewed in his presence. And there's a particular sequence that God has given us by which that happens. When I say it's covenant renewal, what do you mean by covenant? I mean this. You were created to live in communion with God, in fellowship with him. You were created to live in relationship to your creator. And that relationship, very sim simply, is called a covenant. Covenant is not a stuffy theological term. Covenant is not a brand of theology. Oh, I know that covenant theology, brand name for theology. It's not. A covenant is a relationship. Like your marriage covenant is a relationship. Your marriage is an agreement to live together, to enjoy one another, to, to bless each other, to serve each other, to be fruitful together. Likewise, our covenant with God is a real relationship where we live in joy and gladness and fruitfulness in communion with the creator of the cosmos. At the center of that relationship, at the heart of life with the living God is worship. It's in worship where we're equipped to be faithful to that covenant, faithful to that relationship. And it's in worship where that relationship is renewed and refreshed and restored week by week. That's what I mean when I say worship is covenant renewal. Here, when we gather together before his presence to sing psalms, to hear his word read, to confess our sins, to eat at his table, that relationship with God is renewed and refreshed in a formal way so that we walk out of here knowing, yes, I am beloved, I am forgiven, I am a child of the king, I belong at his table. It's in a formal way that that happens in worship. We worship on the first day of the week. There's a reason for that. We worship on the day of Christ's resurrection, the day of new life. So for us on this day, everything becomes new. Everything is restored and refreshed when we come into God's presence. What happens in worship changes the world. So God's people are refreshed and restored. And so the whole world, the whole earth is refreshed and restored and preserved through the worship of the saints, as we saw last week. Many of you could quote Romans 12.1. If I asked you, what does Romans 12.1 say? You could, you could give it to me. But I listen to it carefully once again. The Apostle Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And, and the Apostle Paul says that is your reasonable service. That word service is an interesting word. It's a Greek word from which we get the English word liturgy. And it's used over and over and over in the New Testament to talk about the liturgy or the service or the order of Old Testament worship, the order of the temple and the tabernacle. And Paul says this, he's saying in Romans 12:1, you have a liturgy. You have an order of service by which you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then as he continues in verse 2, he says, that's what's going to keep you from being conformed to the world. That's what's going to transform you and conform you to the image of Jesus. That's what's going to renew your mind. Everything about you is made new as you offer yourself, your body, a living sacrifice. And this is your reasonable liturgy, your reasonable uh, worship. Under the old covenant, you know that um, God's people offered animal sacrifices to renew covenant, to have their relationship to the Lord refreshed. 
But today, the Apostle Paul says, in the New Covenant, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, why would Paul bring up the language of sacrifice and bring up a word that is tied to the Old Covenant order of worship, to use the word liturgy? Why would he talk about this except to remind us that when we approach God, he's already given us patterns of worship and life. He's told us how to draw near to God. God has already told us how to come into his presence to receive his blessing. We assume, you know what? We don't have a bulletin from the church at Jerusalem. Uh, we don't have the website of the church at Antioch, so we can't see their order of worship. We can't listen to uh, a podcast that recorded the worship of the church of Ephesus. And so since we don't have any of that information, we assume that it just doesn't matter. That somehow God really doesn't care how we worship in the new covenant. That really what you do is just what your heart tells you to do. You do what feels good. You do what you think would be really meaningful. You do what's not too offensive, but, but rather relevant to today's nominal Christian or unbeliever. That's what drives worship. But what we miss with that assumption is that the Bible is front-loaded with all this information, a mountain of information about what God expects in worship. God has expressed clearly how to approach him and how he expects his people to draw near, not only in the first five books of the Bible, but also in the book of Psalms. The prophets also have much information about how to approach God in worship. And so we take that information and we make adjustments in Christ because we know we're not bringing bulls and goats anymore. What are we offering? We're offering our bodies as living sacrifices. On the basis of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, you and I are now living sacrifices, bringing forth offerings of praise which, by the way, was the point all along. It was always the point that we bring ourselves and offer ourselves in worship. Animal sacrifices were always meant to be temporary. They were always meant to be substitutionary. The animal is a substitute for the worshiper. Everything that happens to the animal in the sacrificial liturgy was symbolic in a way, uh, symbolic of what was happening to the worshiper. So when you bring your animal and the priest lays his hands on the head of the animal your bull or your goat or your sheep, uh, God is laying a hold of me. And as the priest washes the animal with water, I am being washed, I am being cleansed. And as the animal is cut up and laid on the altar, I am being cut up, I am being rearranged by God's word and I'm being put back together in a new way. So everything that's happening to the animal is really showing what God is doing for you and with you. What God always desired was not the flesh of animals. That was never the point. What he wanted was you. What he wanted was the worshiper. The animal represents you. And when you obey and when you bring animals to sacrifice in the old covenant, you're bringing yourself. And that's what he wants. He wants people who humble themselves and confess their sins and give thanks and obey him with these sacrifices. David, David knew this when he wrote Psalm 51. Remember what he says? David says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. That's always been the case. That's what God is after. That's what God is asking for when he asks Israel to bring forth the animals. He's wanting you to come. That's the sacrifice he's always desired. He wants you. 
that's the sacrifice he got from Abel. That's not the sacrifice he got from Cain, as you'll remember. So knowing this, we can understand that if God calls us to bring ourselves as living sacrifices, and we ask how, how do we bring ourselves as living sacrifices? We'll stop and think, how does he want you to bring any sacrifice? Has he told us how he wants to be approached in worship? Well, why don't we look at what he expected of Israel? What did he want from Israel? And now we make adjustments knowing because of Jesus' perfect and final work as the lamb, we are now offering ourselves as living sacrifices who offer glorified offerings of praise and thanksgiving. In Leviticus chapter 9, we have a summary of what God expected from his priests. And so Moses calls Aaron and his sons, which were priests, and he calls the elders of Israel, and he says, I want you to come together. I want to show you how we're going to worship. I've already explained the sin offering to you. I've explained what you're supposed to do in the ascension offering, in the whole burnt offering. I've explained um, the peace offering to you, but now we're going to put it all together. And I'm going to show you the sequence and the order. In Leviticus 9, God says, this is what you're to do as priests and as a priestly people when you come to worship me. Here's what I want you to do. Are you listening very clearly? God says, every time I want you to offer the sin offering, I want you to offer the whole burnt offering, which we're going to call the ascension offering, but we'll get back to that in just a minute. I want you to offer the sin offering. I want you to offer the whole burnt offering. I want you to offer the peace offering. That's what I want you to do. Sin, whole burnt peace. Don't get it out of order. Don't leave part of it out. Do it the same way. And then the church from antiquity has paid attention to that pattern and has said, oh yeah, let's structure our worship around that order. Let's deal with sin like the sin offering did. Uh, let's be brought up into God's presence to hear him speak as the ascension offering symbolized. Let's eat at his table like the peace offering symbolized. Do it this way. And the church did that for 2,000 years. The prayers changed. The hymns changed. Some used instruments. Some didn't. Some had choirs. Some didn't. But the order was there. It wasn't until the radical reformation, the separatist Puritans, ultimately the second great awakening in the 18th, 19th century, this movement where reactionaries and revolutionaries really felt comfortable to monkey with the order that had been there for centuries. And it's during this time period where the Psalms aren't used in worship anymore, weekly communion goes away. Um, that's where the altar call becomes now a, a, an important part of worship. Instead of confessing our sins at the beginning, we are um, emotionally manipulated to confess our sins at the end uh, in an individual way rather than a corporate way. Lots of gospel songs come up and start getting written where... Um, these gospel songs are not directing praise to God, but these gospel songs are directed to the unbeliever. They talk about the Christian experience rather than the glories of God. Uh, they're, they're, everything's directed toward the unconverted. Christian worship becomes not a time for the believer to enter into God's presence, but the focus of worship is turned from heaven to earth and focused on conversion. I want to be clear, we absolutely want to preach the gospel to the lost. We absolutely want to be put in positions where we can 
preach the gospel to people who don't know the Savior. We do that. We do that all the time. And we have opportunities uh, to, to be a city set on a hill where you have feasts and all kinds of celebrations where you say, you know what, you really want to be a part of what's going on here. You want to be part of life and you want to be part of uh, the, the, the community of the Holy Spirit. But on, on the Lord's Day in worship, the Christian comes into the presence of God in a special way. And so for the last couple of centuries in the West, Christian worship has not been a time to enter into God's presence, but to focus on uh, what, what, what makes me or the unbeliever um, fit or comfortable or happy. What drives the order of worship and the music and the preaching is not the question, what does God require of us in worship? Worship is driven by other concerns. Thinking of the worshiper not as a priest, but as a consumer, how do we grab the attention of the pagan who wanders in here? What won't offend the non-Christian too badly? But what we are hoping to do, and the reason that I'm going through this series with you is to demonstrate and to show to you that what we're hoping to do is to follow the same pattern that God established for his people. When we are told to bring ourselves as living sacrifices, God has shown us what it means to bring a sacrifice. He's shown us the order and the sequence and the rationale for bringing the sacrifice in a certain way. So we endeavor to do things the same way that they did. We don't do what we do because we just want to be weird or countercultural. That's just a side effect. It happens anyway, and that's okay. But in fact, we're rejecting the novelties of the past 200 years, and we're worshiping the way the Christians have around the world for centuries. And in fact, often someone will uh, uh, come worship with us, and they'll say, you know, that feels a lot like when I was growing up, I went to my grandmother's Lutheran church, or, or when I was very young, we were Episcopals or Methodists or, or Orthodox uh, or German Reformed or something of that nature. And, and the order is there. The order is the same. They've forgotten in most branches of the church where we got it, but the order is still there. The order is the same across the board. So we're not trying to be historical reenactors of some ancient liturgy. We do this because we believe this is what is most pleasing to God. We're not free to worship God any way we please. God is the one who tells us how to come into his presence. So let's spend the next few minutes um, looking at what God commanded his priests in Leviticus chapter 9 when he summarizes how they're to come into his presence and what they're supposed to do there. Uh, he gave them a structure. Three sacrifices were ordinarily offered. There were other days where there were other special offerings and things, just like we have special services for special days, but this is the ordinary liturgy. It begins with a call to worship. Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. That's what begins things. That's what kicks everything off. In verse 7, Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as Yahweh commanded. That's the first thing. We're, we're summoned. We're brought into God's presence. Come to the altar, come to the sanctuary. That's the first thing, a call. And at the end, Aaron lifts up his hands and blesses them in verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. So we have a call to worship, and we end with a benediction. We end with a blessing. 
And in between, we have this sequence that we are to follow in Israel. And it's a sequence that we are informed by and we're shaped by as well. The order is important. And for, for us, each section of Christian worship is matched up with these sacrifices. A sin offering, a whole burnt offering, and a peace offering. So, those are, so the first offering is a purification offering or a sin offering in uh, verse 15 of chapter 9. And then he brought the people's offering and he took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people and killed it and offered it for sin like the first one. We may assume that all the offerings were atonements for sin or symbolic of the atonement for sin, that all offerings, all sacrifices were for sin, but that's not the case. The sin offering is for sin. Other offerings served other purposes and were symbolic of other things. But yes, the sin offering was for sin. The, the sin offering is defined in Leviticus 4, if you want to read more about it, was an offering for sin. It was a confession of sin and an offering and atonement. And that's what God wants first. What does God want? After you are summoned to the sanctuary, after you are called to the altar, what does God require of you? What does he want to do first? Well, let's deal with our sin. Christian worship always begins with a confession of sin. You have sinned since the last Lord's Day. You have broken covenant. And the first thing you do when you come into God's presence in a formal way is to confess your sins. Be sorry for them. Be cleansed and come into the presence of the holy God. We don't come swaggering into God's courts as if there's nothing wrong with us. We don't, we don't stumble in late just in time to catch the sermon because that's really the important part. No, there's serious business to take care of at the front end. Our sins have offended a holy God and we need to ask his forgiveness and be cleansed and know that we are forgiven. That's the first order of business. So the first major section of worship in Christian worship, corresponding to the sin offering. Understand, God is giving us a sequence. God is giving us an order. What is required first? A confession of sin. Someone may say, well, you know, I thought, I thought we were forgiven once for all, aren't we? I mean, why do I need to confess my sins? Why do I need to do that over and over every Lord's Day? Why, why should I confess my sins? I'm already forgiven. Well, the answer to that is because your relationship to God is a real relationship. Your salvation isn't something you hold in your pocket. Your salvation is not, you know, a certificate you hang on your wall. It is a real relationship. Like your marriage, you keep your marriage alive by living in harmony and by saying, forgive me, and by saying, I messed up, please restore me. Your, your marriage is a relationship that's kept alive by love and being reconciled over and over and over again. And by that, you improve upon it and you deepen it. John, as you know, the apostle John wrote in his first epistle, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Is John writing to believers or unbelievers? Is he writing to the church? He is. Absolutely. He's writing to the church and he's saying, you have to confess your sins. Yes, the Lord has forgiven all of your sins. He's washed you and made you clean. But you have continued in your sins. You have broken covenant. 
And because you have, you need to confess your sins. We haven't been sanctified completely. We haven't been made absolutely perfect. And that won't happen until we're standing in the presence of Jesus. And so until then, we sin and we must confess that sin. So when you come into God's presence, the first thing that needs to happen, you're called, you're brought, you respond in praise, and then we confess our sins. We confess our sins together. That's the first thing. What's the second offering? What happens next after the sin offering? Well, the second offering in uh, most of your Bibles is translated burnt offering. The word, um, well, it's called the burnt offering because the description of it um, is that the animal is completely consumed by the fire in this offering. Not so in other offerings, but in this offering, the entire animal is consumed. And so it's often called the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. But in the original language, there's a, there's a, a little word there that um, means going up. It's the going up offering or the ascension offering. And what that's referring to is the fact that the, the, um, the smoke of the animal rises up and it's incorporated into the glory cloud of God that rests over the tabernacle. Um, so in verse 16, he brought the going up offering. He brought the ascension offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. That's the second offering. It's an animal that's totally consumed. What's going on here? Well, now that you've confessed your sin, now God says, I want you to come up into my presence. In this, in this offering, yes, indeed, the whole animal is consumed by fire. The smoke goes up. It joins the glory cloud that hangs over the tabernacle. But remember, the animal is representing you. And so what God wants for you is to ascend. That's why we call it the ascension offering, the going up. God wants you to go up and to join his presence, to be part of his life and the communion and fellowship of the Trinity. In the same way, we confess our sins and then we ascend into the heavenlies. We recognize this when I say, lift up your hearts. And you say, we lift them up to the Lord. And then we sing the song that the angels sing, holy, 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 the song that the angels sing in Isaiah when Isaiah goes into God's courts, the song that the angels sing in Revelation when John goes into God's courts. We're recognizing that we are ascending in the spirit into God's presence to hear him and to be heard by him. We're going into, by the spirit, you know, we're not leaving our seats we don't need a trap door on the roof, you know, to kind of fly up there. We're going, we're ascending in the spirit. We're worshiping in the spirit and we're joining the worship of all the saints and all the angels. The fire that burns up the animal in the whole burnt offering, the fire is not a picture of judgment, but it's a picture of the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire that purifies and transforms and glorifies, burning something is transforming it into smoke. And so as we offer our bodies as a going up offering, as an ascension offering, we are being glorified. We are being taken up as the spirit transforms you by worship and makes you an acceptable sacrifice. And just as the animal and the smoke of the animal was accepted into the glory cloud, so are you. This is always on the basis of Jesus' work. You know, it's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we've done. We are united to Jesus and his sacrifice, so we are privileged to go into God's presence. Now, there's another dimension of this. Not only is the smoke of the animal incorporated into the glory cloud, but also in this offering, the animal uh, was cut up and arranged on the altar in a certain way. And it was cut up using the priest's knife or the priest's sword. 
And there's a reference to this in Hebrews. You know it. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Did you ever stop and think, why is he talking about joints and marrow? He's talking about spiritual things, right? No, he's talking about sacrificial things. Well, he is talking about spiritual things. But he's also talking about sacrificial things. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This priest's sword cut up the joints and the marrow of the animal. And so God's sword cuts us up, his word, God's sword, the word, cuts us up in the ascension part of the service. It's what we're doing now. We're hearing God's word. So we ascend into God's presence to hear his word read, to have our lives taken apart and put back together by God's word. Now, uh, a parenthesis or a footnote is that together with the ascension offering, you slide on top of that a grain offering in verse 17. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar besides the burnt sacrifice of the morning. This is something you add to the ascension offering. You add a grain offering. What is this? Well, it, it's not raw grain, as you read in other places. This is an offering where you grind up the grain, you pour oil on it. Sometimes it was baked, but you always do something to it. You always work on it in some way. And as this offering goes up with the ascension offering, this signifies that God accepts you and your works in Jesus. God accepts you and your labor. So in response to the word in Christian worship, we add a tribute offering, which is the offertory. This is where we bring the works of our hands and we say all of our work, everything we have, Lord, is for you. We bring our gifts, the fruit of our labor, because you have enabled us to work and bear fruit and we're gonna give you a portion of that back because we haven't forgotten who we belong to. So if you're tracking so far, God told Israel to bring a sin offering. We confess our sins. God told Israel to bring an ascension offering, a going up offering where the animal is cut up and arranged on the altar and the smoke of the, smoke of the animal is caught up into God's glory cloud. So we see in our worship, we ascend in the spirit into God's presence. The word of God cuts us up, rearranges our life, puts us back together. The word of God, which is like sharper than any two-edged sword. And then on top of that offering, we add our tribute offering. Our response to the word is the offering, the tribute offering. And then the third offering and the final offering that God told his people to offer is the peace offering. Verse 18, he also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. In what way are they for the people? Well, this is the one you get to eat together. So this is the barbecue part of the worship service. This is where you put the animal on the altar and you get to eat. The Lord eats and consumes the smoke. A part of it goes to the priest and he eats it, and the worshiper eats. Everyone is eating. Everyone is communing, the whole family together. Aaron takes the breasts and the thigh and waves it before the Lord, says, Lord, you get the best part. And then everybody eats together. So in the last section of our liturgy, we feast on the sacrifice that was offered for us. What gives us life is the body of the one who was placed on the altar. We are eating the lamb who died, who feeds us and nourishes us with his gifts. Eating a meal together is a way that a covenant was ratified in the ancient world. Moses and the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai to eat together to ratify that covenant. If we all eat the same thing, that means we're one. We're eating the same bread. We're unified. We're in agreement. And our communion in Jesus is being united with him 
by the means of bread and wine. We eat the bread of life. We eat the bread of heaven. And we have peace with God as we drink the cup. So old covenant worship followed this order. Followed this order in the tabernacle and in the temple. And they were not to change it up. And they were not to deviate in any way. They were to offer the sin offering. They were to offer the ascension offering with the tribute. They were to offer the peace offering, which was communion. And so what are we doing? We're cleansed, we're consecrated by the word, and we have communion. We have our sins forgiven, we hear God speak, we eat and drink together in his presence. And the church picked up the rhythm of this order for centuries and followed it for centuries, even to this day. After God instructed Israel on, on how to do this, fire came out from the altar. I'm sorry, fire came out from, from the Lord, came out from the Ark of the Covenant, lit the altar. And then from then on, they couldn't bring their own fire. They weren't permitted to do things their own way in their own order. Where does the fire come from heaven? Where does it come from? Um, I think it came from the Ark. We'll confirm that later. I'm sorry for that. Um, the fire comes from the presence of Yahweh and lights the altar and then from then on, they're not to offer their own offerings in their own way, however they feel like it. They have to follow God's instructions. So worship is God meeting with us, God coming to us on his appointed day, God communing with us after forgiving us, after equipping us and giving us gifts. He, he eats with us and he fellowships with us and he restores us and restores our relationship. Worship always transforms us, and sometimes it transforms us in ways that we don't realize. And, and it happens without this tingly glow, and it happens without this giddy feeling. That's not always present, and that's not always the way it works. You are transformed when you're in God's presence, because God is working. Even when the songs aren't your favorites, even when the pastor flubs the sermon, and nothing makes sense, and... You know, he's, he's all over the place. Or when you get distracted or when the baby's not having it and falls apart and you can't uh, stay in worship with them or somebody stumbles over their words or, you know, something, something happens, it doesn't matter. You're still transformed because God is working throughout the service from the call to worship to the benediction, receiving you as a living sacrifice, washing you, cutting you up and arranging you on the altar, putting your life back together, taking you apart, putting you back together and feeding you at his table. You don't have to completely understand how everything works. You don't even have to feel that it is working to be helped by this. In fact, we don't really understand all of the things that give us life and transform us. Food transforms you and gives you life and feeds you, but we just barely understand how that works. How does a bologna sandwich help me run? Or how does a chicken nugget help me lift a piece of furniture? I don't know. I don't understand how that works. But you eat it and it gives you life. And when you're eating that bologna sandwich, you might not say, oh, this is so meaningful. This is so special. This really, this really is an exhilarating experience. It still gives you life, and it still gives you strength. And you're still alive today because you ate bologna sandwiches when you were six years old. And we give thanks for that. In the same way, worship always, sometimes it's a filet, sometimes it's peanut butter and jelly, but it always disciplines us and it always molds our lives. It teaches us how to live. So God 
God's rituals give us patterns and habits and routines for life. If you need habits and routines and patterns for your golf swing or to learn how to play guitar or to, or to learn how to uh, uh, follow a recipe, uh, if, if you need that for these things, do you not need it for all of life? And God's habits and routines cultivate a true understanding of our relationship to him that our relationship is founded on grace. He is the one who initiates. He calls us. He pulls us into his presence. He pursues us. He speaks to us. We learn that God is holy and just, but that he's good and he loves to be with you. He wants your presence. He enjoys being with you and having you in his courts. He loves to forgive you. He's really glad to do it. We learn in worship that because of the work of Jesus Christ, confession and forgiveness is the easiest thing in the world. This is something that's very hard for young children to learn, that confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness seems like death, seems like the end of the world. I can't say I'm sorry. I can't own up to my sins. And many adults as well, it's the hardest thing to do. But in worship, we learn, no, this is who we are. We're the people who confess our sins and we seek forgiveness because we need it. It's not painful. It's the happiest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's not tragic to confess your sins. It's blessed. What's painful is holding grudges and living in bitterness and breaking relationships and covenants. But in worship, every Lord's Day, we learn, hey, just admit what you did. Repent, and it's all forgiven. Because God loves to forgive. He is full of mercy. He also loves to correct you and instruct you and encourage you and rebuke you when it's necessary because that's what you do for those that you love. We learn in worship that he loves to give you good gifts, that he loves to satisfy your mouth with good things, and that he's proud to call you his child. We learn that everything is a gift and we don't live to serve ourselves. Every step of the liturgy disciples us. We're called to worship so that we can call others to worship the living God. We are forgiven so that we learn how to forgive others. God teaches us by his word so that we understand how important it is to teach others, how transformational his word is, how vital it is to grow in wisdom and understanding. God feeds us so we can feed the nations. God pronounces a blessing on us so that we can go out into the world as anointed Christ-like people and transform the world. There's a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of worship is the law of life. How you worship dictates how you live. If my worship is um, chaotic and disorderly and emotionally manipulative, that's how I'm going to live my life. That's my world. That's how I'm going to live. How you worship dictates how you live. But if my worship is directed by things God has said and demonstrated, and if I understand that I don't really have the liberty or the latitude to monkey around with what God has given me, if God has shown me what pleases him, I want to do what God says. Most importantly, I want to obey God when I'm in his presence in a formal way on the Lord's day. So that I want to do that on the Lord's day so that I can live the rest of the week and so that my children can live taking him seriously and knowing that he has spoken and it's our duty to obey. So we can live taking him seriously and his word seriously, not led by our whims, not led by our desires, but by his commands. And so we endeavor to obey. 
And we pray that God continues to reform us and strengthen us in this. Now, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the patterns and the sequences that you've given us in, in your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes to any blind spots that we have, that we would continue to be reformed by your word, and that you would direct us and cause us to walk in your paths. Father, um, guide us into truth. Deliver us where we're in error. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.